Um, hello, welcome to The Lore You Know, a show where we chat with some amazing human beings who are storytellers, collectors, and folklorists as we discuss the history of, inspiration behind, and importance of recording and sharing regional tales. Today, I have Emily Wayland with me. Thank you so much for joining Hi. me. Hi. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to, to get you on here and chat with you. Um, for those folks who are watching or listening, can you give a brief introduction to your connection with the cryptid, spooky, paranormal community? Sure. So um, I am part of a husband and wife team, the Singular Fordian Society. My husband is Tobias Wayland. And we started our venture into the unknown in 2015, 20, not 2015, 2016. I'm sorry. I get my years mixed up. Um, but sort of, I mean, we all had our backgrounds and we, when we met, we sort of came together and formed what we do now, which is paranormal journalism, investigation and community. And there is definitely no topic that we stray from. So we don't specialize in just UFOs, ghosts or whatever. Um, you might know us best from the Lake Michigan Mothman investigations. Um, Tobias has a book of that name. And for me, um, it was always just growing up. I don't have any exciting encounter stories per se. Um, I have one from my 20s that I tend to tell. But uh, for me, it was always just a curiosity. I was a weird kid. I was into like sci-fi and stuff like that. I can't really explain why I liked it. I think I like like the exciting stories behind it. I think that's why ghosts are more or less my favorite because the fascination with what happens to us after death, even though we might not know if that's what ghosts really are, right. has always been fascinating to me. And I don't know if some of that roots from my fear of death as a child, like mm -hmm. wanting to understand what does happen so I can be less afraid of that inevitable end. Right. So um, that's, I think that's a lot where my interest in the subject matter comes from. And I had an encounter in my 20s that I brushed off for many years um, because I think I grew up in a very like skeptic scientific home, which I, I get it. I don't blame anybody in my household for having that viewpoint, um, which is, I think it's fine, but like you know, I think I just more or less became conditioned to shrug anything that I encountered off until I was almost 30, because that's when I really truly started to dig into it and understand it and get into the topic beyond just a casual interest. Mm -hmm. So when I was 25, um, I had just gotten out of a breakup and as you do in your mid twenties, whatever. And I was upset, whatever. And my grandfather had died. <laughs> my grandfather had died the fall prior to that. So um, fall 2011, he passed away. And this would have been spring 2012. And I lived in a basement bedroom of a very old apartment that was divided up. A lot of old houses in Madison, Wisconsin, where I lived at the time are like old houses that are divided up into rental units. Very, kept very badly. Um, and this is just a tidbit for understanding like the space I was living in. I actually had six bats within my bedroom that year. Oh, wow. That would come okay. in through the walls. <laughs> so 
so my way of dealing with that until I was going to move out was to put up mosquito netting around my bed mm-hmm. and sleep with the lights on and a sleeping mask. And as a result, I never slept super well there. Like, yeah, I lived there from August to August in 2012, from 2011 to 2012. And they, most of them, I mean, six bats within that time of time frame is like kind of a close quarters. So it, you know, it was many months of not sleeping very well and just kind of dealing with this until I had to move out. So yeah, it was a couple of weeks after my breakup that I had previously mentioned. And I remember it being pretty early morning. It had, the sun hadn't quite risen yet. I could tell from the one window in my room. And I just kind of like, you know, when you're kind of groggy and drifting in and out of sleep, I kind of like remember I was like laying on my back and I was kind of got up on my side, but I saw a shadowy figure off to the side. And it was a set, it was like any shadow figure that you hear described, like very hazy, humanoid, um, kind of transparent, cloudy, dark figure. But um, I noticed some features on it that made me recognize it as my maternal grandfather that had just passed away. I could see like it was a typical like grandpa sweater with the collared shirt underneath it. I could see the cleft in his chin. I could see his glasses, his comb over hair. And he just said, you know, like, it's a shame you guys couldn't get along, but you'll be okay, honey. And then I just was like, okay, okay. Felt very comforted and went back to sleep. And I remember in the morning thinking that was very profound and like a very real feeling experience. But at the time, I just kind of shrugged it off as a dream because of how I had been conditioned to being more skeptical about ghosts and all those things growing up. So that was kind of what my position for years. And I, you know, I felt comforted too, which I thought was weird. I didn't like feel freaked out by it. So I thought that was also weird and kind of why I dismissed it as a dream. But after talking to Tobias about it and looking more into this later on, I realized that by remembering how I was noticing the things in the environment, remembering how my body was and the coming in and out, um, it definitely to me seemed like a visitation that I was awake for. And I think it's not uncommon if you're visited by a loved one to just feel comforted. Like that's something that people report a lot with these sightings. So that is my paranormal story for my background. Um, But I think that's also another reason why I tend to be interested more to ghosts than anything else. Uh, yeah, there's a cat back here. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's a cat. Oh boy. I have a black kitty that is just as ordinary as that one. <laughs> that absolutely would have happened had we been recording this at my house. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Oh, I love the kitty. Um. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, the visitation. I've had um, not not so much uh, where I'm awake, but I've definitely had those dreams after someone's passed away or if something traumatic had happened that they show up. And I always feel better after that, that dream. 
I think dream visitations can definitely be a thing. Like if ghosts exist on a level of our subconscious, that's got to be a easy way to, you know, tap into visiting us is on that level. So it's, I could see like dreams actually being a real visitation too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It certainly feels like it when you wake up afterwards. So you were saying that you grew up in a very skeptical household but were there stories that you had heard, whether it was something you had seen on a show or books that you read or anything like that, that kind of just caught your attention as a kid, um, even if it was just, just for the fun of a story, were there any ghost stories that stick out in your mind? Oh, yeah. I, it's hard to like, I feel like with the ghost stories, it's harder for me to pinpoint specific cases I remember growing up because like, um, you know, just the fact that I think of all the paranormal phenomena that ghosts are the most approachable and easiest to believe in for a lot of people because of the idea that they are the persistence of consciousness following death. So I think people, a lot of people are interested and believe it, same reasons I kind of became interested. But I remember in terms of just paranormal stuff, I thought Bigfoot was very real. Um, Mm-hmm. I saw the Patterson Gimlet footage as a kid, and I thought it was very, you know, without the education that I have now in like photography and just, you know, learning more as an adult as I grew. Um, that one seemed very believable to me because, I mean, just looking at the way it moved, I watched, I was always interested in like animal documentaries. It did not seem like a costume to me. Mm-hmm. So that one always stood out to me, and it just, made me I I always thought it was like a creature we never didn't understand yet there's creatures that get discovered all the time that we didn't know existed before granted they're usually insects or something but um I mean think of our oceans and stuff like that like the ocean is comparable to space exploration in terms of what we don't know Mm -hmm. so just that possibility like alone it was just kind of like, well, of course, that there's more to this than we shouldn't just be shrugging this all off. Yeah. Yeah. So it answered the question. Yeah. It did. <laughs> um, so were there <laughs> other cryptids that you were interested in or aware of um, when you were younger? Yeah. I mean, I always liked like Nessie and like anything weird in Wisconsin, like, you know, the Beast of Bray Road always interested me. I wasn't sure, I didn't really have a hard position on ter- in terms of where I stood on believing that one. I didn't really know about Linda Godfrey and her um, investigation until I got into this field. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been like 2016. So I was a little bit late to the game in terms of that. But I always liked the idea of, you know, other monsters existing. And I, I mean, one of my favorite things to draw growing up was monsters. It's just the weird, the weirdness of other worlds that fascinated me so um I definitely wanted them to be real mm-hmm. in terms of whether or not I believed in them or not um I, I always thought the story of like Haunchyville in Wisconsin was always very interesting What's the idea that, story? that there's like I'm trying to remember where it is in Wisconsin and I can try to pull it up but there's a l- urban legend and they've disproven it but it's like a village of sm- like small people like fairy kind of people living in this weird collective in the middle of this Wisconsin 
forest called Hanjiville. And it's since then been, that area has been visited. I wanna say it's in Southeast Wisconsin, but people have since gone to that area and the location that they said it was mm-hmm. has since then been proven as like a very developed suburb. So that was definitely an urban legend, but the idea of that existing was just so fascinating to me. And there's a bunch of that everywhere. So do you ever go out and I mean, I've seen on following you guys on Instagram that you've been going out to the Kettle Moraine recently, like, yes. What are some of the stories associated with that? Are you out searching for things when you're hiking through that area? Yeah, I mean, we definitely are just kind of open to the experience of that area. Um, and the, I mean, the Kettle Moraine is huge. We definitely, so like, we definitely go out mostly in the Southern unit because our friend Jay Bachochin bases his Bigfoot research there. Okay. And that's based off his own experiences in that area. And he continues to go out. So we kind of like follow his lead and are open to what he experiences, which are definitely cases of high strangeness. And then in the northern part, there has been, we explore like the Holy Hill area. There was a, um, it was like a bear wolf sighting in 2006 where a guy was collecting carcasses with the DNR and this bear wolf just jumps on his truck and takes a carcass into the woods. So that we've definitely explored that area just because of that story. There's a road out there called Hog Hogsback Road that has had, I mean, it's a, I don't think there's anything to the road besides like steep inclines and it being dangerous that people like to joyride on. Hmm. But there's legends associated with that area. There's legends with a goat man coming out. And on that area specifically? The the northern part. I wondered if that's why that name had sounded familiar to me, the goat man stuff. Yeah. So the northern part, I think it's all part of the same forest, obviously, but um, there's definitely a bunch of weird stuff going on there. And we've experienced everything from shadow figures to weird lights going, like just little fairy lights to like um, like almost like red eyes, white lights floating above the treetops that can't be explained by a celestial object to perhaps a UFO. So mm-hmm. um, everything that goes within that forest is pretty crazy. That's wild. When you go out on these investigations, I mean, how do you approach things? Do you take particular equipment with you um, or is that like second or third time out that you take equipment and you just kind of feel it out at first how does that typically pan out well the first times we went we definitely had less with us I think it's natural to bring more out as you accumulate it right um but Jay is very into if he sees something he documents it because he wants that evidence and I definitely think that we've always had like cameras on us if something just ex- that we experience just happens to us we get on camera and tell it but it it's hard to show that phenomenon with the technology that we have um jay definitely has more equipment than in terms of like thermal imaging and stuff like that but we were the ones who brought out the spirit box out there and we've had some interesting experiences with that over the summer we did a ce5 experience out there experiment out there and I think maybe in the future, we'll even do uh, the Estes method. So mm-hmm. um, I think it kind of depends on the kind of investigation we're doing, because sometimes we do take just night hikes through the woods. And then sometimes we sit, we park our chairs somewhere and just wait for what 
come, to come to us to come to us. So it's very mixed in terms of what equipment we bring and investigation methods we use. What did you, did you say CE5? Yes. So that's close encounters of the fifth kind. So um, mm -hmm. what is that? So explain? what we, <laughs> I will try. <laughs> <laughs> so what we did was we had a stakeout investigation. So we found like a clearing and waited for the sun to set. Mm. And then we set up, we had this app, which follows the research of Dr. Stephen Greer. And in the beginning, he it's like a guided meditation. Okay. Wait, I got this out of order. So first the app plays crop circle tones, which are intermittently played very strange beeps, um, trills, various noises. Um, they're just kind of filled with aliens and extraterrestrials and UFO ufology. And then it goes through a guided meditation where you're supposed to open yourself up to anything contacting you from the outside. So we did, did the crop circle tones, we did the meditation, and then we just kind of sort of wait and see. And, and this past summer, Jay had his digital binoculars out with infrared. And all of a sudden he says, Hey, you guys got to come see this. And there you can see the insects coming in and out of the frame, kind of worrying like that. I know that's weird, had motions, but you can kind of hear, see that happening. Mm -hmm. And then we had, we could see what was an airplane because you look in the camera and then you look outside the camera and you know that's an airplane. We can tell where the various airports are and what those look like, but there was an object that moved very erratically that you could only see in infrared through the digital binoculars. And I mean, of course, we don't know what it is, but by definition, it is an unidentified flying object. So right. I don't know if it was brought up by our experiment, but if there was something there that, you know, it immediately following our meditation was very interesting. And I don't think there's a good understanding of technology to as to why that object would only show up in infrared and not the naked eye. So that was very interesting. That is really interesting. And that does remind me a lot of, well, I mean, you mentioned later doing the Estes method, just that I, I feel like this is that, a version of that somewhat, but for clothes. That's really neat because I don't know, I just learned about that just now. You taught me this. I didn't even know this existed. So I'm going <laughs> to have to look into that. Um, what's the wildest thing that has happened when doing something like that for you guys? Um, I say that that's definitely up there, but mm -hmm. there have definitely, and following that experiment, we went out another time where nothing really profound happened following that experiment, but on the way out, there was definitely an energy that felt where we felt like we weren't wanted there. And it felt like we were being pushed out and I'm a jumpy person. So I will be the first to admit that <laughs> I jump at a twig breaking in the dark in the forest. <laughs> And I think my, compared to my first time out to now, I've definitely gotten over a lot of my fears and jumpiness in that area. But on the way out, I just felt like some, and I think there was multiples in our group. We had some of our society members from Patreon with us, Jay and our friend Adam of the Pines Barons Institute. And a lot of us felt like very afraid and nervous, like we didn't want to be there. And it just kind of felt like we were being chased out. There were some sounds of like, dogs in the distance that seemed to get closer which could 
an explanation, but it just, it just felt like we shouldn't be there. So that, that was something that was very profound. Um, I've been out on other investigations where it, something has happened that I can't explain. And that was, uh, this isn't the kettle though. Do you want that story? Oh yeah. Tell me I'm up for all stories. <laughs> cool. So uh, one time we went to the Al Ringling mansion in Baraboo, Wisconsin, and we were taken on like a pretty casual ghost tour. Like the guide, I mean, lights are on, but the guide was telling what the history of the place with, you know, any stories that have to go with that particular room in the house or whatever. And this is the Al Ringling mansion of the uh, Barnum and Brothers, Bailey, uh, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, the famous one. Mm-hmm. So um, I was, and I was photographing it just for our records. And it was, this was pretty early on in the Singular 40 in society. I would just, you know, take pictures of everything and not anything. I would say I do that some now, but back then even more so, cause I like to get more into the investigation now. But um, I was, we we're getting ready to change rooms and I needed to change the light on my flash. It was dark out, so of course I needed some extra light to help document the spaces. And I had my flash detached from the top of my camera and no batteries in because I took the batteries out and it started flashing randomly. And I just was like, what the heck is going on? And of course, Tobias turns around like, can you stop that? What are you doing? And I was like, I don't know what I'm holding the flash in this hand. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I'm not doing it. And it like, it, it stopped. And it was by Al Ringling's old office that um, he, that there's a lot of sightings associated with that room. So mm-hmm. that was interesting. I've had a lot of technical malfunctions in haunted places like that. I would say that one's my favorite one to tell just because it was so profound. Mm-hmm. But that definitely was very alarming. And I, you know, I don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about um, your photography, I have the copy of the Feminine Macabre here, which you also made the covers of these two books. We already, we talked, we talked with Amanda Spook Eats um, a few weeks back, but you're, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You have a piece in the second volume about like ghost photography, things that show up in, in old film. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Do you want to talk about that particular piece or just general terms? You, in, in general, you can talk about that. And if people want the particular piece, they should get the book. Absolutely. So this, yeah, this is in the second edition of the Feminine Macabre. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And in that, I examine an old photograph at a theater in Madison, Wisconsin. But um, I have a degree in photography from the UW from University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was the only school in the state that examined every single um, medium of photography. So that being black and white film, color film and digital. So um, I'm very thankful to have the understanding of that that tech and a lot of the film, understanding that film chemistry is vital in terms of understanding how these photographs work. Um, I think it's, in general, um, it's easier to debunk digital works because 
I think there are a lot more people photographing now than they were back then. And mm -hmm. photography is not necessarily a foreign concept to people anymore. Back in the film days, it, photography was very specialized. There are very few people that understood and could do it. Whereas now people have perfect technology in their back pocket on their phones. So, you know, we get things happening from, uh, you know, like just a weird, because our cameras on our phones, especially are automatic and we have very little control of the control, how to control each exposure. Like if you have a SLR, which means single light reflex, which is in short, a fancy camera that you can control how long the light is let in and how fast the shutter goes down, which is not, you don't have as much control with that with your phone. Okay. So a lot of times we'll get things. So a lot of times people don't understand what they're seeing on their phone because their camera is trying to con, uh, their camera is trying to um, compensate for something that if it's too dark, it's trying to let more light in when you try are trying to let more light in um the shutter has to go slowly so if you're in on have a night mode on on your camera um the camera is going to be taking the picture more slowly which in terms your hand is holding it your hand is not steady it can shake so you might see i mean some common explanations are like light painting from a slow capture um any orbs or bugs that move through the area. Um, it's picking up, sometimes they even pick up more than we can see. So for me, those are easier to debunk. But if you don't understand film chemistry and how those, how you would have to hoax a ghost photograph, then um, that is, I think those are more, more believable to me. So, uh, there's like several ways that you can explain film ones. You'd have to understand light leaks, chemistry, um, and just how those cameras are held in order to debunk a photograph. So there's definitely mundane explanations for digital and film. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as film goes, it's for me, it's easier to spot it being a hoax or not on digital because of the access to technology these days, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. So then <clears throat> when you guys, uh, if you get pictures submitted even through the Singular 40 and Society with cryptids, that would presumably all of that's like a digital type photo these days for the most part, right, that you get? For the most part, like we've looked at some historical photos like the Miyaka skunk ape. And I think that's probably one of the more convincing cryptid photographs that we have in terms mm -hmm. of like understanding how the, cause that was taken in the nineties mm -hmm. with film. And I mean, the eye shine coming off the creature's eyes is very telling to me yeah. when the flash hits it, because if it were a costume or something, you wouldn't replicate that um so that understanding those pieces of technology i i cannot think of a photograph where we'd we've received it in singular 40 in society where we didn't have an ex a good explanation for it mm -hmm. because most times it's something we can easily explain 
Yeah. Are there certain tells that that are like obvious from the beginning when you get a photo that is just aside from it looks like somebody just copied and pasted a, a picture? Right. Yeah, because there's definitely like ghost apps people like to use, and right, I mean, we've seen a couple of them where it's like, well, that's obviously, and one of the easiest way for me to tell that with those ghost apps is that a lot of them have the same stock ghost in each program. So like you'll yeah. see that same ghost all over the place. Uh, it, I mean, we don't get too many of those. I can't think, I don't think those are used as much as they are anymore, but yeah, just, I think understanding how to hoax is explains how to quicker identify something. So like right. I can see where an object is Photoshopped in. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people assume that you know, they see like an orb or a like mist coming off the side of the camera and they, they don't understand what that is. Mm -hmm. These aren't hoaxes, but that's probably insect or dust. Right. And the steam off the side could be breath out in the cold weather. So those are some very quick, obvious um, answers for photos that people perceive as paranormal that are not, that I, we get it in this day and age typically um the hoax ones are even more obvious because you can pull out i think there was this photo going around and i want to say 2018 2019 and it was they some guy was reporting it around the media saying that it was the beast of bray road um and we go went out and dro drove the route so he described speed limit signs being in a certain place well that wasn't there but right. The creature itself looked very rogue taxidermy. Oh. <laughs> so usually, like a creature or something, you can identify you you can identify what it is or not. Um, mm. And we had that too with the Lake Michigan Mothman with um, some mundane animals. Like there was a photograph going around from the Pulaski area that people weren't able to debunk, and it was a butterfly. <laughs> And you'd have to understand like various species in the wing shape in order to tell that it was a butterfly because it went around for a couple of years being like, I don't know what this is. People were saying it was a kite, but it was actually a question mark butterfly by the end of its wing in flight. Hmm. So those are some very like easily explained photographs um, that, that we got in this day and age. Yeah. So we, uh that brings us back around to the Lake Michigan Mothman, which, as you said earlier, might be um, where your names come up a lot recently is in, in that story. But aside from the Lake Michigan Mothman, is there a cryptid in particular that catches your attention more than others? Um, that's like a favorite, if you will. I would say Bigfoot. I would say Bigfoot, um, simply because there are so many sightings of it. And I think that now that I've looked more into the high strangeness aspect of it, mm -hmm. like I think growing up and most of us believe it's an undiscovered biological creature, but the idea that it could be alien or related to ghosts or come through portals or something like that is just so much more interesting to me than the undiscovered primate aspect of it mm -hmm. I I mean if you would have asked me in 
2016, what I would have thought Bigfoot was, it definitely would have been an undiscovered primate. And I know Bigfoot is like cliche and everybody's favorite, but there's just so many sightings and so many bizarre sightings with it. And a lot of them sometimes relate very closely to the Lake Michigan Mothman in ways for me. So I, you know, I begin to question like, are they related in any way? Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I really like to explore that one so much and like how intelligent are they? Are they trying to be humanoid form to contact us? Like the, there's a lot of questions I think you can ask about him because he's so relatable. Right. So do you think then that he changes shape and ask, like, could you said something about contacting us? So do you think it's possible that he changes shape depending on what? Oh, I think it's possible. I don't definitely, I, I don't have a hard, firm like sure. theory on it because right. of how strange it is, but I absolutely possible. Like, and there could be multiples of them. I don't think there's only one or one per area. I don't think there's only yeah. one Mothman. Yeah. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think it could change change form if it's. I I mean, I, I like I like to think of it as if it's extraterrestrial alien and they're trying to project something to communicate with us. That it's humanoid. I think that's a good way to do it, if from their standpoint. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, before we tell everybody how they can find you, I did want to ask you to tell me a story. Okay. So, um, now did you grow up in Wisconsin? Yes. Um, I'm originally from the Rockford area in Illinois, but, uh, I grew up in Southeast Wisconsin since I was three years old. Okay. Can you tell me a story that is close to where you grew up? Unfortunately, not really. <laughs> I did okay. grow up um, most of my experience, what I adopted as my home, which was Madison, um, with, where I lived for 10 years. So I had that experience with my grandfather. And I've also seen, I've, I also have a ghost that I saw near where we used to live mm. there, where I was walking the dog one day and it was early morning and I always have to kind of keep my wits about me just to make sure I don't experience another dog or he right. always stops every five feet to pee on something or sniff or whatever. Cause dogs. <laughs> yeah. and I remember, he, I remember he stopped to do what he does. And I like happened to look behind me for a second. And there was a guy, there was a gentleman walking behind us from, I would say 10, 20 feet away. And he was he was carrying a newspaper, he was smoking a cigarette and he, I mean, he could have been from a different era, but it was still like, he had a kind of a shabby sweater on a newsboy cap, slacks mm -hmm. and like nicer shoes, all darker in color. And, you know, I'm like, okay, there's a guy behind me, whatever. I, you know, I try to get my dog's attention or do whatever with that. I happened to just look up back where he was and he was there again, closer. And then all of a sudden just vanished, like no transition blink of an eye gone right in front of me. So that was, that was very strange. And Tobias, who was on here recently had a similar sighting in the very same area, which is interesting. Yeah. So I was wondering um, if this is the same place as the pink uh, jogger. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's wild. We'll have to yeah, investigate that. Yeah. Anything from growing up is anything from Holy Hill that I previously mentioned in this episode, so. 
nothing really in the town where I grew up. Yeah. No, I appreciate you sharing that with us. That's what, as soon as you said about the dog, I was like, oh, and I went back through my notes because <laughs> Tobias had said, ask Emily <laughs> after the pink jogger uh, incident. So I'm glad you shared that with us. Um, so where can we uh, find you, Emily? Sure. So um, we, of course, are at singularfortian.com. Um, we are on pretty much all social media channels, but most prominently on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. And our handle is at singularfortian. Oh, Facebook, of course. Um, yeah. And me personally, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at weird garden nerd. So weird garden nerd. Yeah. And I know that's a strange handle, but that's what my personal handle is. I you can it. also join the society if you would like. Our Patreon is at patreon.com slash singular And you can join us at any level that suits your investment in this material as well as your budget. So that is where you can find me. That's where you can find the Singular 40 and Society. Awesome. Thank you so much again for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I did okay. <laughs> oh, you did great. I, yeah, you did awesome. Um, and the kitties did great too. That's <laughs> yeah. Um, um, if you could like, subscribe, leave comments or suggestions in the, uh, the comments below. Um, you can join the Small Town Monsters squad, become a channel member and get early access to things, ad-free, 4K, um, and then some videos that no one else gets to see but squad members. Um, you can send me an email at heather at smalltownmonsters.com as well. And until next time.